This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Sorry for the slow start. We are uh, uh, just getting going. Um, my name is Ben Aris. I'm the editor in chief of BNE and Tele News, and I'm very pleased today to be uh, joined by what, to my mind, is a bit of a legend in the business, Barry X, professor at uh, Penn State U, um, whose claim to fame, in my world anyway, um, is that he was the one who, co- who coined the term virtual economy to describe the Russian economy in the 90s. And uh, what I wanted to do today, given the the extreme nature of the sanctions that have been put on Russia and the crash that we're in the middle of, um, is to have a look at what the possibilities going forward are and how the nature of the economy has changed because we've been arguing that it's actually changed dramatically and that we may be time to look for a new term in order to describe it. So Barry, welcome. Thank you, Ben. So I thought we'd start off with um, just recapping briefly what the virtual economy was in so much as it was so long ago that I guess everybody's forgotten. But in those days, in the 90s, you know, Russia was a basket case. uh, And it looks like to what extent it's going to become a basket case going forward is is actually the, the question de jour. So if you don't mind, I mean, just recap uh, what it was like in the 90s and why you came to this term. Sure, let me do that. Um, The important thing about uh, the 1990s uh, was this was a period of very low oil prices, which meant that Russia's uh, production of resource rents was very low compared to previous periods. I mean, oil prices have been falling from the you know, late 80s and they fell to a minimum in the mid 90s. At the same time, the collapse of the Soviet system meant a big uh, weakness at the center of the Russian economy. There was no central control of the Russian economy. So it came to be what came to be the Russia's virtual economy developed out of the fact that there was no longer any central control over the distribution of resource rents in the Russian economy. During the Soviet period, central planning had distributed rents throughout the economy to support economic activity throughout the Soviet Union. Um, In the let's say in the glorious Putin period, uh, Putin controls the resource rents that are distributed, were distributed throughout Russia as Russia made this economic recovery. But during the virtual economy period, there was sort of a chaos. There was no central control. And since oil prices were declining, you know, virtually there was a scramble to uh, acquire rents to prevent enterprises from collapsing. So it was a period of low rents, lack of central control, and uh, say competition from below to get rents, you know, by connections Mm. with Gazprom and UES, you know, and things like that. Right. So things have changed dramatically in the meantime. And uh, although Russia's economy is being heavily sanctioned, internally, the system's there and the distribution of money is there and the payment system works. 
and you have companies that are profitable, uh, particularly in those you know uh, raw material producing countries. And so even if you bring in sanctions on oil and gas and metals, they'll continue to make exports, they'll continue to earn. What will happen in effect is that the size of the market that's available to them will be shrunk and the discounts they're going to have to offer will increase vastly. But in that sense, it's very different from the 90s, what's going on now, because we're talking about a machine that works, it's just being the costs on it are being dramatically raised. So in that sense, the Putin can sit inside this box that's going to be Russia and it'll still work. Is, is that how you see it? I think that's a very good description. Uh, the key difference between now and what was in the 90s is Putin's control has not been weakened within the domestic Russian economy. Mm. So Putin still has, so you're right that Russia will have diminished rents due to sanctions. I mean, oil and gas, they'll sell it, but they'll sell it at discounts. But the there won't be, well, there isn't now, this scramble uh, because of decentralized control over the allocation of rents. So in some sense, what happens is, is the level of rents declines. It actually makes Putin, the allocator, more important to the functioning of the domestic economy because the, those, those enterprise you know, companies that are desperate for the rents need him even more. Um, so that that's actually a step backwards. I, I interviewed Boris Titov, the, uh, the Ombudsman for Business, uh, and, and he made to me a very good point um, that he was saying the noughties, um, the boom there, gold was raining down, but it was raining down on everybody and the private mm -hmm. sector in particular. But after the 2008 crisis and the crash that happened that time, all of that private gold disappeared. However, there was this stream of money coming in, a huge amount of money, because you know oil was still at 100 bucks in 2008. Um, but it was exclusively in this pipe of state-controlled enterprises. And as a consequence of that, suddenly Putin, his, his government became super important because they had to allocate the money. Uh, and the only source, lots of capital, was suddenly these state-owned enterprises, the Gazproms and Rosneft of the world. And what these sanctions have done have just expanded that the, the 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 amount of money coming down that pipe has been reduced but now there's there's nothing for anybody that's the only source of capital and ironically doesn't that solidify putin's position even more i mean he's now ceo of what's left of, of russia inc isn't he that's right i mean under the current conditions this heightens his uh, authority because he is the distributor of the rents he has control over the resources um, because, as you say, uh, you know, there's less alternative sources of value coming in because, you know, the competitors are weakened. So Putin is strengthened um, in that sense. You know, all those companies, like to, they're, like they're to, cut off from their capital markets now. I mean, there's, yes. there's literally no, no source of money. There's no, no alternative, whereas there was, I mean, even under a reduced regime, there was some alternative. All those a dozen IPOs we've had, they raised whatever it was, $12 billion. That's gone. You can't do that anymore. Right, right. I mean, there was a lot of connection to the international capital markets uh, in the mid-2000s, before 2008, when Putin started to rear that back. And there was a lot mm. of other sources of capital. And capital was coming back 
uh, from uh, capital flight even uh, sources. There was FDI and there were all sorts of opportunities. Now, if those, if sanctioned sources are unavailable to the Russian economy, the only sources will be those that Putin sanctioned. There'll be Putin sanctioned sources if you, if you abuse that term. So isn't the irony of these sanctions? I mean, some have been hoping, I was talking or tweeting with, with a US senator um, who's saying sanctions need to be tougher. We need to collapse the Russian economy. We need to um, engender a revolution where the people rise up and throw him out or that the, uh, the Alice coup that they rise up and, and throw him out, arrest him, whatever. But actually the reality is that we've just made him stronger because in order to function in Russia now, he's the only source of money there is, no? That's, that's right. I mean, it, it's hard to see the, an alternative source of uh, authority because everyone is more dependent on him. I mean, it's not like the oligarchs uh, are independent now. They're, all of their alternative sources of wealth have been ruined and only their Putin sources of wealth remain. Mm. Uh, to some extent. It's, so it's hard to see that, I mean, it is the case that predictions always come out wrong, you know, and everything looks one way until something else happens. And in the, you know, given that we're only, you know, a month since the invasion of Ukraine, which many of us got wrong, I don't want to be too strong on my predictions. Nice. Um, but it is the case that the way sanctions are being imposed, it's going to strengthen Putin's control over the Russian economy. Just briefly, do you discount the possibility of a popular revolution? I mean, the latest opinion polls put him with 84% popularity. That puts him back at a Crimea national pride peak. And so the propaganda that he's been doing seems to be working. I talked to my liberal friends in Moscow um, this week and they're, they're confused. They're like, but, but there are Nazis, but, but they shelled Donbass. But, but you know, those poor people with Russian passports in Donbass are being killed by the Ukrainian army. And actually there has been some of that. So um, do, do you think there could be a popular revolution or even a palace coup? I don't see a palace coup. Um, and a popular revolution, that seems unlikely. I mean, the one thing, I should say is that um, these sort of revolutionary episodes happen in the big cities. So the fact that Putin is immensely popular throughout all of Russia, and especially strong in the countryside of Russia and through all the time zones of Russia, I mean, if if there were a revolution, it would happen in Moscow, mm. right, or say, or say Petersburg, and it'd be some urban riots that they can't control, just like you know in in 1917. Um, but I don't see that at all on the horizon because, you know, the press and TV is putting out Putin's statements. There doesn't seem to be, he's very effective at controlling public opinion and yeah. public opinions on his side. Yeah. So let me pick your brains about some specifics. I mean, the um, issue at the moment uh, is possibility of, on the one side, Russia cutting off gas supplies to Europe. On the other side, Europe not buying the gas anymore. And there's actually seems to be a lot of confusion about this. Um, and we've been arguing that it's impossible to replace the gas going to Europe from Russia in the short term. And right. that it's it can be done 
in a couple of years. And I've talked to other energy analysts, the chief economist at, at BP, for example, and he says it could be done if Europe adopts a war mentality, you know, the Berlin Luftbrücke kind of scenario. Uh, but then that would mean extreme change in living conditions in Western Europe, and nobody wants to go there. Um, but at the same time, you know, everyone's complaining that Germany's spent four cents, Moscow, four billion euros in the last three weeks for its gas payment, which is fueling the Putin death machine. What, where do you, what, what's actually going on there? What, is, what are the realities of it? To what extent can we cut off Russia? To what extent can Russia cut us off? You know, how, how does that play out? Well, your question really focuses on what is the political price Europeans are willing to pay. And as an American, I should say, we're now considering releasing uh, petroleum from the strategic petroleum reserve because gas prices have gone up. Uh, so we're not willing to pay any price. Sorry, by um, gas, you mean petrol? Petrol, yes. You know, yeah. <laughs> the strategic petrol, yes. So, uh, you know, because people are worried about it, you know, there's talk of releasing a million barrels a day from the strategic petroleum reserve. Mm -hmm. That, you know, that suggests to me that we're not really willing to go on a war footing in order to uh, deal with this crisis, especially given that there's also a climate crisis and, you know, producing more, you know, releasing more petroleum from the strategic petroleum reserve is not helping with the climate crisis. Okay, getting to Europe, the key point is that in the short run, things are very inelastic. It's hard to make these adjustments. Uh, you know, you pointed out, I know, because I read, I read you religiously. I mean, uh, Germany, you know, they get their get, they get all their gas by pipeline. They don't have facilities for LNG. And we mm. can only increase our exports of LNG by about a 10th of what uh, they're importing from yeah. uh, Russia. So in the short run, it's not clear uh, what adjustments can be uh, made. Um, you know, the, the backbone of the German economy, these medium Russian, these medium German metal working enterprises use lots of energy and their electricity prices are going way up. It's not mm -hmm. clear that, you know, it's not clear to me that Europe is willing to go to a wartime footing. I mean, if you go to a wartime footing, NATO would be involved. Uh, it seems, it seems a, a contradiction in some sense that Europe would go to a wartime footing in terms of economic uh, suffering. Uh, at the same time, it's not doing it in a military way. Let, let me ask you, because it seems to me that there's a fundamental conflicted view here in so much as on the one hand the uh, eu and germany are talking about accelerating the wind down of use of russian hydrocarbons and the germans put a date on it 2020 uh, 2025 at the same time the eu has said that we need to fill the tanks now to 80 percent capacity by october 1st otherwise the crisis that we've just been through the gas crisis we've just been through is going to be 10 times worse. And the one we've just been through was really bad. And so that they need to import as much Russian gas as fast as they can. 
So these are two conflicting, you know, the, the Europe itself is completely conflicted over its relationship with Russia. It doesn't know what it wants to do. We have to have the gas to avoid the crisis. We don't want to buy the gas because we don't want to finance the war. It's, it's a, a circle that can't be squared, isn't it? It's a, this is a very difficult problem. What you point <laughs> out is a very difficult problem. And it's worse if you're signaling to Russia the nature of your strategy, that you want to cut off Russia as an exporter of gas to Europe. And in order to do so, you need to buy as much gas as you can possibly from Europe now to make it possible to cut Europe from Russia, cut Russia off mm -hmm. from Europe in the future. I mean, you need, an, you need another year. You need another, you need another year, year to of get good. Yeah. Exactly. You need another year of good Russian supply behavior before you uh, punish them. Mm. And what about oil? Because uh, the States has banned imports of Russian oil, but everybody you talk to in the energy market says it means nothing, that oil is easy to send anywhere else and that it's going to do nothing to the revenue stream. Um, and the UK are going to phase it out by the end of this year. Ditto means nothing. Uh, if Europe joins that ban, then doesn't it start to get more serious? I mean, the revenues to Russia, I mean, it has $500 billion, I think, of exports, of which, oh, I looked it up, um, oil is $120 billion. Oil to Europe, the West, is $120 billion, and uh, gas is $145. So that's a good half of Russia's exports just there in the hands of the West, which they could, in theory, take away. And then I don't believe or I don't think that the, the energy markets could absorb all of that extra oil and gas. I mean, the gas, of course, you can't send because you need to build a new pipeline. The oil you could send, you know, $120 billion worth, you could send it to another, another market, but it won't be able to absorb it. I mean, isn't, to, to what extent is this, uh, is this feasible? I like the uh, analogy that uh, the oil oil is like, the international oil market is like a bathtub. The international natural gas market is like spaghetti, right? hmm. because everything has to be distributed by pipelines and natural gas. So it's very hard to make adjustments. LNG is only recently making a small change to that setting. But oil is like a bathtub, so oil that isn't sold to, the, to one country can be sold to another country and substitute. I mean, there are short-run things that oil traders will talk about because different grades of oil are suited to different refineries. And yeah. so sometimes in the short run, as these redistributions take place, there have to be discounts because refiners don't want to take that level of crude. But... Uh, there's plenty of markets throughout the world. I mean, in some sense, if Europe cuts its imports of Russian oil, then it has to buy that oil somewhere else. And if it buys that oil from uh, the U.S., then the U.S. needs to import that, uh, needs, uh, the U.S. was exporting that oil to somewhere else. Though, let's say Japan, then Japan needs to get that oil and they'll have to get it from uh, Russia. I mean, it's only if worldwide consumption of oil declines that it makes a real difference because the oil can slosh around. I mean, India's buying a lot of oil. China will buy a lot of oil. I mean, there'll be discounts. Iran was able to evade, you know, and export oil. Those were tougher sanctions. But even then, they, you know, they kind of trans through the UAE to get their oil 
exported to different markets. Um, mm -hmm. So it's it's not clear that if without a drop in worldwide consumption of oil that a region can have that big effect. Uh, it'll have some effect because it'll it'll cause oil to be sold at a discounted price. So the revenue will be lower, but given the price is so high, a discounted price still brings you back to a high price for 2019. Yeah, um, and the, the Russian economy, is, it, fu it functions on $42, $42 and we're right. well over. Yeah. The big Sorry, worry is, no, I just wanted to say the big thing I should mention is what does China's lockdown do to world energy demand? Mm. You know, I mean, that could be a serious impact if that gets worse. So to what extent can Asia come to Russia's uh, rescue here in so much as, you know, Russia and China, China's already opened its wheat markets to, to Russian wheat, which uh, is very helpful. Um, and India has already bought some discounted oil and commodities. You know, they're taking advantage of being able to buy cheap oil in a, in a high priced market. Um, and between India and China, they're, what is it, two-sevenths of the world's population? I mean, that's a, that's a huge share. And so to what extent can Asia help? I, I think Asia can help a lot. I mean, obviously, Asia, China's a big uh, importer of Russian gas, and that, you know, that should grow. Um, and India is a big importer of Russian oil and Russian military uh, hardware, too. Uh, so that will be, India is a very important market. Um, and I think that with, in general, when oil prices are over $100 a barrel, everybody is scrambling for oil. And if everybody's scrambling for oil, the seller is in a pretty good shape. Even with sanctions, sellers are in pretty good shape. Mm. The, um, the trouble with oil at the moment is, I mean, the, the discount on uh, euros to Brent's used to right. be around two bucks and now it's blown out to 30. And right. it seems that the traders uh, won't touch Russian oil with a barge pole to the point where Transneft, the national pipeline company, yesterday said, ask the, um, the producers to slow production because storage is full. They can't shift it. So they're not able to cash in. But again, you talk to the oil traders, they're saying this is a technical thing because people are avoiding it because of the threat of new sanctions. But once we get past that, things solidify, then that oil will go back into the market and they'll find a way, they'll put it through Singapore and it'll go around the houses and end up in Washington anyway. That is a good example of how these secondary sanctions, and they're not technically secondary sanctions, these private sector sanctions have affected Russia probably as much as the official sanctions. Mm. The fact that financial institutions are afraid of being sanctioned, so that they can't get, they're afraid they can't get insurance to insure a tanker, or they can't get financing, so they just voluntarily drop out, that has a big effect. And that's the effect on traders right now. Um, and so the question becomes uh, how long before uncertainty over this type of activity is reduced, right? Because people don't know, will those secondary sanctions take place? So isn't this a key question? Um, are you saying that once this uncertainty is removed, once we get into this new sanction regime and get used to it, then it'll find a new level because at the moment it's it's harsh it's causing a lot of problems 
And clearly it's going to recover and people are going to find technical solutions, dodges, scams, whatever you want to call them, to solve these problems so that Russia will end up being able to go back to exporting its oil. But because of the sanctions, there's going to be a discount going forward. And What's... all this, that's it. That's basically what it's going to end up as, isn't it? That would, that would be my expectation. So, you know, if there's a $25 uh, discount that they can export oil at $75 a barrel, they're still doing fine. And the more effective sanctions are, the more likely oil prices will stay high. So the, the net of the discount price will still be high for Russia, mm. but they, they'll be paying a price. I don't think Putin cares, though. I mean, he no. uh, prioritizes security over economic prosperity, and he's made that clear for a decade and a half, that you know, if he gets what he wants in terms of missiles, then he doesn't give a monkeys about your you know, EBITDA margin or whatever it is. Um, let's move on to the ruble, if you've been following that, because uh, it's been quite a roller coaster ride. I mean, <clears throat> fair value in October was 70 and then it hits 150, I think, last week. And now it's back to 83, 86 this morning. Way. But this is, um, isn't this, I mean, people are saying it's Nabulana. She's, um, she's doing it very cleverly. She put, slapped a whole bunch of uh, restrictions on the market and then she started trading again and then she's artificially lowered it to this like almost pre-war level. Um, but what do you think the goal of that is? I think the goal of uh, her stabilizing the ruble is to control as much as possible Russian inflation, to mm -hmm. you know, to prevent average Russians from you know getting rid of rubles and trying to hold other currencies or other assets, goods as a store of value, because because it, the ruble rate is not as important as a financial asset in the conventional sense, because imports and exports are already reduced by sanctions and foreign and capital flows are already reduced by control restrictions. So it's not as if uh, she has to worry about, uh, you know, will there be a run on the Central Bank of Russia's international reserves? Uh, we better make sure we don't overvalue the ruble because then we'll run out of reserves. I mean, the reserves have already been taken, uh, mm. you know, so she doesn't have to worry about that. So in some sense, I think the goal is to prevent financial panic domestically so that the ruble is still usable in the domestic economic sense. I think she's been successful. I was reading some preliminary um, CBR results and they said that long-term uh, deposit have started rising again. People are looking because Rostat just reported this morning that uh, based on the weekly inflation numbers, inflation now, everyone was predicting 20% for this year. And based on the, the weekly numbers that just came out, it's actually closer to 15, which gives you a 5% real return on a bank deposit at the CBR rates. And so people, Russians, you know, they know this whole dynamic very well. And so they're like, oh, 5%, that's actually okay. Um, let's do that. And they're putting the money back in the banks, which also means that she's convinced the Russians the banking sector is stable, which right. is also a feat. Exactly. And she's, I don't know, I, I look at her, I mean, to me, she's, I, I was joking this morning, um, 
that she should have a gold medal. She surely is the world's leading expert on how to handle a financial system in a crisis simply because she's done it so many times. And she seems well, to be acting very competently here, no? Yes, yes. But I would say that uh, the deputy governor of the central bank, Senya Yudayeva, who was mm. a graduate of the New Economic School, mm. a student of mine in the very first class, is also a very good uh, central yes. bank. I should get some yes. credit too. Yes. Um, uh, <laughs> no, everyone but, uh, who came out of the New Economic School is a bit of a yes. star. I mean, from Guriev, uh, who was running policy in 2008 and then ended up at the EBRD and is now at Sciences Po. Uh, they're, they're all stars. Yes, we're very proud, very proud uh, of that. Um, but, uh, you know, more seriously, yes, I mean, they're doing, a, she's doing a good job and uh, they've been, it's been very effective. And it's, uh, that's again, one of the great differences between let's say now in the nineties mm. uh, is, you know, the, uh, the skill uh, of using macroeconomic tools at the Central Bank of Russia. Um, I interviewed uh, Gerashenko once, uh, who was governor in the 90s, and uh, it was hysterical because he was in London um, as a young banker, speaks English, but uh, his conversation is just full of mo movie titles. And I asked him like, why he didn't get the Duma um, to, to close down some of the banks. He says, you know, getting Duma to do anything, it's mission impossible. <laughs> <laughs> Hysterical, uh, terrible, terrible central banker too. But um, do you think it's possible though to exclude Russia from the dollar? The SWIFT sanctions, uh, Biden, the secondary sanctions of doing business. I mean, Biden said specifically, we will lock Russia out of the dollar. Uh, to what extent can that happen? A lot of the uh, that depends on what happens with you know the previous issue of oil and gas exports. I mean, it's mm. not possible to lock completely out of the dollar if Europe is still paying for, still has to buy oil and gas. Um, uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, I'm I don't know how effectively they can do that. I mean, there is the, it is the case that the threat of uh, the, the threat of being of a financial institution being sanctioned by the US government is so scary that a lot of banks will voluntarily forego business with Russia just because they don't wanna take the secondary sanction out. Mm. So, you know, that, that's the effectiveness of it. The effectiveness is through the private voluntary withdrawal of the relationship. Mm. Um, because, you know, we can, the U.S. can sanction effectively the law breaking, the law, I'm not sorry, sorry, the law abiding financial institutions of the world. Mm. As a result of dealing with Russia. Um, broadening the question out, I mean, we, um, th this is the most significant country that's been sanctioned. The CBR uh, sanctions are the most significant, but it's not the first time. There's been a couple of examples of CBRs, of central banks being uh, sanctioned in the past, but this is the first time it's happened to such a large economy. And it was suggested to me that this is the first time that the West has tried to, or whatever you want to call them, uh, 
has tried to sanction a country that's actually in a position to strike back because it's so deeply integrated in the global economy and that you can't sanction it without getting some sort of boomerang effect. You can sanction Iran, nothing happens to you. You can sanction Afghanistan, nothing happens to you. You sanction Russia, it's going to cause you problems. I mean, we talked about this scenario where we have blackouts in, in, in Berlin this to what extent is the Russian economy integrated in the global economy? Because that's part of the sanction proofing it has, is that we actually have to pay a political cost and a very expensive one on our side if we're going to see this through to the end. Yes, you're, you're very uh, correct on this, that uh, unlike other countries that we've sanctioned, Russia is a big player because it's you know, it's producing 11 million barrels of oil a day. It's exporting 7 million barrels a day, including refined products. It's the second biggest producer of natural gas. It's the biggest exporter of natural gas. I mean, and it produces steel and aluminum and nickel and palladium and all sorts of important commodities that are important for the rest of the world. So Russia can you know, have an impact on the rest of the world. I mean, of course, when we sanctioned Japan, that, you know, uh, before World War II, uh, they had a reaction as well to uh, sanctions uh, and uh, kind of, you know, bombed us. So that was a different kind of reaction. Um, but the uh, Russia has, is an important player. I mean, that's the important Point. It's just an important player in the world economy. It's not so much that Russia could react, it's that we need Russia. It's not that it's not so much that Putin could threaten to cut off Russian gas, it's that Europe doesn't want to have Russian gas cut off. That's the power. The power is that Putin doesn't have to do anything uh, to Europe. Europe needs what Putin supplies. Could you draw a parallel between sanctions on Russia and sanctions on Iran? I mean, where the the, the similar, where the the different. The big diff. Well, one big difference is that uh, you know Russia is a much bigger oil exporter than Iran. You know, even right. at its peak, it was a much bigger oil exporter. So the effect on the market is much bigger, and it was a much bigger exporter of gas a uh, tremendously bigger exporter of gas than Iran. So uh, the amount of energy that Russia is exporting to the world market is order of magnitude almost more than Iran. So the world market could absorb the Iran, Iran's cutoff of exports, which weren't to zero, but they could cut uh, adjust to that relatively easy. But, uh, you know, Oil prices have shot up over $100 a barrel, and we haven't even cut off Russia's oil exports. You can just imagine what mm. prices would be without Russia's oil exports. So that's one difference. And of course, the uh, other producers are also uh, relevant. I mean, the financial sanctions are amazing. And, you know, it, it, it cut off Iran, you know, very completely. And we've done a, a good job to some extent, but Russia is more self-sufficient in a lot of areas than Iran is. I mean, Russia is a big food producer. Russia is mm -hmm. a food ex grain exporter. Iran is a grain importer. 
Um, so there's a lot of ways in which Russia, you know, is He's more prepared, prepared himself, hasn't he? Exactly. Putin's been preparing this for a long time and, and made sure right. that as many things as he can, that he's become self-sufficient on the basis of national security. Yes. Uh, I was just looking at some of the questions. People are asking, um, to what extent is there a parallel market uh, because of these restrictions? I mean, have we got a black market for the ruble and uh, the spreads? I mean, I was talking to our head of tech uh, who lives in uh, Lake Baikal, Siberia. And she was saying, and I was saying to her, look, you're, you know, you're paid in dollars, so you're laughing. And she said, no, I'm not, because when I go to the bank, they're quoting me an exchange rate, not of 135, but of 82 which is completely Jack and Ori. It's just a made up number. And so she says, I don't actually get the benefit from the devaluation because uh, the bank is just dictating the, the price to me and I can't do anything about it. But if there was a, but that, but, but that situation then gets you the hard currency dealers on the street, um, which I don't think we're at yet, but is that far away? Or I don't know, is, isn't this Nabul and his campaign is, is to prevent that from happening? That's a good question. I think your last comment is probably right, that uh, this is what she's working hard to prevent. I don't think, I mean, it's too early to know. You know, like your friend in Lake Baikal, if, you know, it, it, for a few months, okay, there's hardships, you can't take the money out of the bank, but if things return to normal, the fact that she had money in dollars will have, you know, maintained its value and then she'll be mm. okay. And if mm. things persist, then, you know, she'll have lost that money in some sense. So time is very important here. I don't think we're going to see the dollar uh, changers on the street yet, partly because that would look like a public demonstration of support against the war. Yeah. Uh, so I think that would be kind of cramped down on very fast. Um, to switch text a little bit more or to expand the ones on sanctions that um, I was just talking to, to the German Chamber of Commerce and we were discussing these tech sanctions. And I wrote a piece, oh, I think last summer, uh, saying the soft underbelly of Russia sanctions is precision machine tools. Right. And it sounds extraordinarily geeky and it kind of is. However, if you look at it, it seems to be key in terms of Russia's development and competitiveness because of the crisis. And when it happened, I mean, the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia missed out on two revolutions in machine tools. And I know it doesn't sound particularly exciting, but it's incapable now of catching up and it does not have a tools industry. And moreover, the high-tech stuff it imports largely come from Germany and America. And it's been cut off from that. I mean, I, I see this as one of the most significant sanctions. It's not going to show in the short term. But in the long term, it condemns Russia to fall behind everybody else and be unable to catch up. I mean, I don't know. What, what's your view on that? I found that an interesting article, uh, which I read. Um, I think it's a very, it's an important point, and it dovetails with another factor that, you know, this Russian brain drain that is mm. taking place. So... If you, if you take the machine tools and you take the brain drain, together they're signaling uh, future productivity gains will be hampered um, because of this. You know, Russian industry be less efficient, 
And with less, you know, if there's a significant brain drain, that reduces all the, that'll reduce future technological change, productivity growth, which makes Russia even more dependent only on its resource base, because mm -hmm. any alternative way of growing in the future becomes more difficult. So I think that's it's, very important. I remember, I would, go on. I would just remember that like in World War II, the Soviet Union, when they captured the uh, B-29 that landed in Siberia and Stalin ordered Tupolev to rebuild this thing, the machine tools couldn't produce widths and inches because you know everything was in the metric system in the Soviet Union, but they still somehow managed to jerry-rig an exact duplicate of the B-29 through <laughs> ingenuity and creativity. But uh, um, uh, I accept the fact that, you know, the, the falling behind on modern machine tools is going to be a big problem, but in the long run. With the brain drain, I was wondering, because, you know, if you did a brain drain in Estonia, <clears throat> or even Czech Republic, it's a serious problem, because you don't have many people. But you've got this huge pool of people extremely well educated and like the ones who have made it successful you know who have names have a cv um they're leaving hundred thousand of them already maybe another two hundred thousand to follow and the best and the brightest the tech sector in russia was the most vibrant part of the economy and they were doing world-class work I and mean, really impressive work however you can replace them can't you because of all the young uns that are coming up um that it, it's going to be a pain in the neck. You're going to lose that expertise, but it's not like Estonia or Belarus actually is the one to compare to where you've taken that whole generation out and Belarusian IT is not going to recover quickly simply because they, it's going to be so hard to replace them. Yes. You know, you're right to some extent, but you're also losing the producers of new educated mm. people because the educators are also, you know, the... It's not clear how the, personally, it's not clear how the sanctions will enable the new economic school to survive, mm. uh, you know. Well, in they this just situation. sacked, didn't they? What's her name? Um, one of the lecturers who was asking if she could lecture uh, distance from Georgia because she didn't want to be in Russia and they were just like yeah. sacked it. So. We're, we're worried about, uh, you know, it's very hard to, right now we're fighting to stay operational, but, you know, who knows what will happen because faculty will want to leave Russia. Uh, and so that makes it hard to educate the next generation, okay, on a broader sense. Now, you're right that Russia's got a massive educational system, and so you will be able to produce people, but uh, it's not clear what fields they'll go into. I mean, the biggest uh, mystery to me over the last 20 years is why Russia did not develop its petroleum engineering sector more effectively. Why is it still so dependent on Baker Hughes and Schlumberger and those people when you had this hugely educated engineering computer uh, uh, population in a country with massive petroleum deposits? Why wasn't there a crash development of petroleum engineering which Isn't would help the catch-up costs um in so much as those companies have so much or uh, so much money and they're so focused on getting a profit that they bring in the best consultants to do it and and the parallel i think is the whole siberian camembert thing in so much as um russia didn't have a cheese industry because there was no point setting one up in so much as you could import french camembert 
so cheaply at such high quality. And if you were to try and make it yourself, you do much more expensively, poor quality. And so nobody was prepared, because you couldn't compete. You, you, they only did it, they only invented this. There was a lady who did Siberian cannabis, right. which ended up yeah. being very good. They only did it when they were forced to. So but, in the same with your engineers, no? I mean, we're at that point now. Oh, yes, we're at that point now. But the difference is that Russia would be a natural country to have a developed mm. petroleum engineering sector because for 50 years, well, for more, since the mid 60s, it's been one of the world's largest, it's the largest or second largest petroleum exporter. And it has a huge academy of sciences, huge engineering, huge mathematics, huge, and even huge computer uh, programming sector. All the natural skills needed, Russia would have had. I mean, the US developed a huge petroleum engineering sector you know, at the turn of the 20th century, you know, University of California and Stanford basically started petroleum engineering because all this oil was discovered in California and mm. it had a long run payoff. <coughs> uh, I, so it, it's anyway, but you're right, it hasn't happened. And now to do it is very expensive. Um, yeah. I think if I, was to ex if I was to explore the mystery, one thing is that the Soviet oil sector just didn't believe in the value of it in the 80s. They didn't understand how much they were falling behind world petroleum production technology. Mm. Uh, and so they didn't realize how much oil they were wasting from their own techniques and methods. That's why there was such a boom in the 90s when these guys eventually came in and, you know, did it efficiently. BP and all these guys and yeah. So to step back, um, you know, I, I've been arguing that the problem with these sanctions is they're not going away, that the nature of the market has changed, that it was a market economy with a very open current accounts. And so that after each of the crises, which got progressively did less damage, that Russia could always bounce back. And that the difference this time, this time is different in the immortal words, right. uh, is that the nature of the economy has been changed. That it's now going to be dominated by the state, as we mentioned at the beginning. Um, and that the sanctions mean that the no longer has an open current account. So, to what extent can it can recover from this sanction, uh, from from this stagnation, or is it doomed? That is a very good question. Okay, first I would say, you know, uh, what happens to the durability of sanctions? to some extent depends on how you know, the world tries to deal with an end to the Ukraine problem. Because presumably if, if Ukraine and Russia can come to some way to slow this process, then the West is gonna have to come to some deal about sanctions removal as some part of the you know, uh, incentive for Putin to, you know, concede something and Ukraine to concede. Part of a global deal will be something on sanctions. But if there isn't any, which is likely, I mean, in America, I can't see us ever lifting sanctions. If that's the case, then there'd be a more permanent effect on Russia. And so in that case, what you said before, Russia will be an economy with uh, very dependent on its resource exports, 
as it always has been, much less integrated in the rest of the world financially, capital account closed, trade very restricted, more things running through the state. It'll be like a, you know, allocation as a market economy domestically, but with huge control of resources from the central government. Well, there's some hope. Uh, Liz Trust, uh, the British Foreign Minister, suggested this morning that some sanctions come out, could come off if a peace deal is done relatively soon. Um, and I was saying in my previous talk is that another good sign or hopeful sign is that the American sanctions have been put on by presidential executive order and not by the House. They haven't been legislated. And legislative sanctions are impossible to remove, but the president has can do it at a whim by the stroke of a pen. So that gives Biden negotiating room uh, to undo these. Look, within the last few before, minutes, not before the midterm election. Not before the midterm election. No, no, clearly not. Clearly not, particularly with the re recent poll numbers. Uh, I'm just the last few minutes looking at some of these questions. Um, Yeah, the, that was a good question. Uh, the sanctions boomerang effects, isn't Europe way more exposed to that than the US? The pain caused by doing sanctions, doesn't that hit Europe much harder than the uh, States? The yes, States, yeah? yes. That, I, I agree with that completely. Uh, Europe is much more dependent on oil and gas uh, from exported from Russia. And Europe, trades more with Russia. Europe exported more to Russia and imported more from Russia. So it's much more dependent than we, than the US. US is tiny compared to that. And I saw that in so much as um, the US has been pushing for more extreme um, sanctions. I, I described it if, you know, the, the US sees Russia as a rival. Um, the Ukraine's obviously as, or NATO sees Russia as an enemy by definition. However, the Europe sees Russia as a business opportunity. And the integration between Europe and Russia is pretty deep, um, obviously in the energy, but not only fertilizers, diesel, just looking at diesel, I mean, diesel's a huge issue. Uh, and they're actually, particularly the Germans, of course, uh, very interested in doing business with Russia. And that all argues, because at the end of this, um, even with the new regime, with the new, with, with the inexcusable, attack on Ukraine, which is, it's just horrible from start to finish, but business people will go back. And like of that 450 who've left, actually a third of them have suspended. And you've got another third of major companies who haven't even left. And I'm cynical enough to think that money wins out over politics every time and that the business will go back and it will restart. And then there'll be a long, slow process where business will lobby to improve relations. Um, however, What's the, the the fly in the ointment is just the the mind-boggling violence that Putin's rained down on Ukraine, which is going to scar those relations for generations to come. So I don't know. It's another circle that can't be squared. Um, my, but, my uh, could I say that? Uh, well, Cliff Cliff Gaddy would tell me I should mention that uh, in that context, the Lena Goldfields. So the Lena Goldfields was a gold mining operation in the Tsarist Empire in Siberia along the Lena River. Soviets expropriated it right after the Civil War. Mm. Became a big international legal case. Ignore that point. Soon after, in the early 20s, the Soviet Union invited the company back 
to uh, operate the Lena gold fields under a new arrangement with the Soviet ministry. Just because? after they've been expropriated by the government. What? Because, why? Because they couldn't they, run it themselves? They wanted, yeah, they... they couldn't run it themselves. They wanted, they wanted the technology from the British. They went right back in. They started exporting, uh, producing the gold, mining the gold again, and they were expropriated right again. Nobody, uh, so your point is well taken. The riches in Russia are too great a prize for Western capitalist businessmen to ever forego. Yeah. And no matter how what the fear, look at BP. BP is a modern example uh, uh, to some extent of that because after they were expropriated the first time with Sedanko, they went back in with TNK. Yes. Uh, yes. And then they, then they were pushed into Rusneft and they were happy every time. That's a modern I... unicorn I talked to uh, Friedman and Avon about that specifically, and they admitted to me openly, yeah, we took it, just screw Patanin over because he kept us out the Suez Invest deal. Yes. And it was pure peak, pure peak. And like you say, BP just took it on the chin and then went back and did the TNK deal. And then Ross left after that because uh, yes. of the money. It's the modern Lena Goldfields. Barry, um, we're pretty much out of time. Uh, really fun to talk to you. Uh, really interesting. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. And uh, we should do this again. Next time we should do it with Clifford Gaddy as well. Get the band okay. back together. <laughs> but thanks again. Thank, thank you, Ben. I really enjoyed this very much. It was, it was great. Thank you. Great. Good great. luck. Thank you very much. And so all of you out there, thanks for joining. Um, fascinating talk. I covered some of the questions, but maybe not all of them. Um, a little plug for the publication. Um, you can follow the story on bne.eu every day. Um, I recommend if you're interested, you can sign up to Editor's Picks, which is a free email digest where we put the best stories from the last 24 hours. If you're in the game uh, and you want more, then try out our BE uh, Pro service. There's a trial, two weeks, and a special offer there where we go into a lot more detail, uh, drill down into the economics, the corporate finance of it. And this talk and others you can find on our uh, YouTube channel, BE and Telenews. Again, at uh, intellinews.com. Welcome, you can find the links to that. So until next time, thanks for joining. Take care.